0: Well, our introduction today to our sermon comes from literature. Who was it who said it was the best of times, it was the worst of times? It's Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, right? Best of times, it was the worst of times. He goes on to say it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. That's poetry right there. Spring of hope, the winter of despair. And, of course, famous introduction to A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Charles Dickens. Really, at the heart of that book, it's the story of redemption. And this serves as a really good introduction to our our verses here in Luke chapter 23 because, um, you know, this is is the story of redemption. And this is the culmination of Jesus' work here to to redeem mankind. And um, to the disciples who had all scattered... At this point, chronologically here in Luke's gospel, um, this is a time that seems to them to absolutely be the worst of times, to be a season of darkness, to be a season of despair. But when men were doing their worst, God was doing his best. And that's what we see here. What seemed like the worst of times to these disciples was actually ushering in the best of times. And what seemed like a season of darkness and despair was, in fact, the dawn of a season of light, and it was the, the dawn of a spring of hope. This is, this is what this story is here today, and maybe today you have come into church and you're hanging on by a thread. Maybe this morning you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, and it seems to you, perhaps, that, man you are in the worst of times or you are in a season of of darkness or despair. And if that that is you, you've come to the right place today. Because the big idea of our text today is that even when you are at your worst, that God is at his best. And so we pick up the story here today with Jesus appearing before Pilate here in uh, Luke 23. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, Then the whole multitude of them, Who is the them? This is the religious leaders, the mob that has gone into the Garden of Gethsemane, that has taken Jesus by force, that has dragged him illegally through a trial in the house of the high priest, and then from there dragging him formally before the Sanhedrin, trumping up charges against him, false charges, false accusations. And so once they get what they're looking for, something they can charge him with, This multitude of them arose and they led him, verse 1 says, to Pilate, Pilate is the Roman governor of uh, of, uh, Jerusalem, and verse 2 says, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So the backstory here, we saw it last week, is that the trumping up of false charges before Jesus. This is what they're looking for, and what they have him on is blasphemy, and it is again false testimony. Jesus has not blasphemed uh, God, but this is what they have charged him with. Now they, the penalty for for the, for this sin, is death, but the Jews don't have the power. To, to execute the sentence that they have passed because they have been taken captive by Rome. And Rome says, look, we're going to let you function and do your whole religious thing and all, but you, but you can't kill people. That's, that's our job. And so they now need Rome to pass sentence on Jesus to, ex- to execute uh, Jesus. And so this is why they're bringing him before Pontius Pilate. They're, they're, they're wanting, hey, we want you, uh, you know, to, to, to kill this, this guy. And so what happens is um, they understand in bringing Jesus before Pilate for Rome to put Jesus to death, really, they could care less about the fact that uh, Jesus has committed blasphemy. This does not matter to them at all. So, what do they do here? They they make up three false accusations that they bring to Pontius Pilate of things that he would actually care about. And so, these three false accusations are number one that Jesus was a revolutionary, that and that you know that's a that's a, a you know hey he's perverting the nation and and that would matter to Rome. Secondly, they said that Jesus incited the people not to pay their taxes. And that would matter to Rome very much. And thirdly, they said that Jesus claimed to be a king. And and that would put Jesus, uh, they hoped, in the eyes of of Rome as, hey, he's in opposition to Caesar. And so these are the three accusations that they bring here uh, before Pontius Pilate. Verse 3, then Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, and Jesus answered and he said, it is as you say. Now we get a glimpse here into the way Pilate is receiving all of this in the word that he uses, the word you. Because that word you in the Greek, it's, it's in the emphatic. And so here's what that means. What Pilate is saying is as he looks at Jesus, he's like, you? Are you the king of the Jews? And, and the idea here is that Pilate clearly doesn't see in Jesus anything that makes him think that he's guilty of what they've just said. Hey, this guy claims to be a king. He's like, this guy? And remember, Jesus has been beaten up pretty badly here. And so, you know, here he is now, you know, this, in, in this, uh, you know, humble state. And so, so Pilate just, hey, I don't see it kind of thing. Verse four, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Uh, But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, uh, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, Herod was the governor over the the Galilee region, the Roman governor over the Galilee region. And so as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Typical politician. See, Pilate here, you know, the, the, the historical backstory is that um, really all Rome cared about was that the Roman governor would maintain peace and order. That's all they cared about. And, and being a Roman governor in Jerusalem was a tough task because they, they were just a very difficult people to govern, They had great resentment for Rome. And so there had already been some uprisings and some, some problems. And so basically, Pilate here was walking on thin ice where Rome was concerned. And he didn't want to lose his position or his appointment. And so this whole thing just seems like trouble to him. And so as soon as he hears Galilee, he's like, oh, I can pass the buck. That's what he wants to do. So uh, what's he do? He, he sees the opportunity to pass Jesus off to Herod. And verse 8 tells us, Uh, that when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad (coughs) and um, just overjoyed is the idea. Uh, For he had desired for a long time to see Jesus because he had heard many things about Jesus and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Let's unpack this for a minute. This Herod here is uh, Herod Antipas, all right? Herod Antipas um, was, man, he and his whole family were a wicked mess. His dad was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy that when the wise men were coming uh, to find the Messiah, Jesus, who had been born in Bethlehem uh, some 30 years prior, uh, they ran into Herod the Great. And Herod the Great told them, oh, I want to worship too. Uh, Come back, let me know where he's at. Well, these wise men get tipped off from the Lord like he ain't going back there uh, because he's got some nefarious plans. And, of course, Herod the Great, being a very paranoid leader, uh, he wanted to kill the Messiah. And so the the wise men didn't go back to him. So what did Herod the Great do? Well, he decided, well, it's been about a two-year time frame now. Let's just kill all the male children two years of age and, and younger in that region, and then I'll secure my throne, and that's what he did, really prince of a man, you know, really great guy, so that was his dad, well, again, very paranoid guy, he killed several of his wives and several of his sons for the same reason, because he was afraid that they would take over, you know, his throne, there was a saying that said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. But some of Herod the Great's sons survived. One of them was a guy named Herod Philip. Now, Herod Philip ended up marrying one of his dead brother's daughters. This gets very complicated, okay? But he he ends up marrying one of his dead brother's daughters. This was a gal named Herodias. And uh, she was Herod Philip's niece, uh, and then he took her as his wife, right? And so... Herod the Great had another surviving son, not not just uh, Herod Philip, but he also had Herod Antipas. This is the Herod in our story today. And Herod Antipas, he stole Herodias, Herod Philip's wife, away from him. And so if you're keeping score, that makes Herod Antipas' wife, Herodias, that makes her his his niece and his sister-in-law. Right? Now, now how many of you have seen the movie Deliverance? Okay? For all of you young folks, Deliverance was, uh, I can't even explain it. Just, this is, you know, one of those things. Those of you that have seen the movie, you know, ding, 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 ding. Like, this is, this is what's going on here. Okay? But wait, there's more. In Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist comes on the scene. And he confronts Herod Antipas. He says, dude, look, it's not cool. You married uh, your sister-in-law, who happens to be your niece, that you stole from your brother, right? That ain't cool. And so wh- how does Herod Antipas respond? Does he, is he convicted by this, con- this, this man, this man of God who's confronting him, him in his sin? No, he, he's not convicted by it. He, he throws John the Baptist into prison. How dare you tell me the truth, right? Throws him into prison. Um, and so fast forward from there a few months you 've got Herod Antipas, and he throws this party now now he 's got his, his wife sitting next to him right his sister in law his sister in law niece slash wife sitting next to him, and now her daughter is dancing before him, and he starts to become sexually turned on by his wife 's daughter right and and so <laughs> here you 've got. His sister-in-law, niece, uh, stolen wife, uh, and, and sitting next to him. And now he's got the hots for his daughter-in-law. And this guy puts the fun in dysfunction, right? This is this whole, this is the whole family. They're, they're a mess. And so Herod, after Salome, uh, Herodias' daughter, who, who dances for him and, and who he gets turned on by, he's like, I'll give you anything. You can have up to half of my kingdom. And so her mom whispers in her ear, Hey, tell him you want John the Baptist's head. Now Herodias, she's like, how dare this guy tell me the truth? Prison's not good enough for him. I want this man of God to die. And so this is what Salome. she hears this and she tells um, Herod Antipas, she's like, uh, I want John the Baptist dead. And so Herod Antipas says, okay. And, uh, and so he kills John the Baptist. Now later on as Jesus is doing his ministry There's all kinds of murmuring, and there's all kinds of talking. And and we get a a glimpse of this, Jesus talking to his disciples. Who do men say that I am? And and so they start saying, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, you know, and so on. Well, what Herod thought was that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, because this is what he's being told. And so he has this, you know, fascination to this morbid curiosity about who is this Jesus guy. So here in verse 8, you know, he's, he's fascinated, has this great desire to see Jesus, but not, not for, for genuine, hey, I want to see Jesus because I'm convicted in my sin kind of thing. No, it's more of a, this morbid curiosity, this fascination with the supernatural, and he just wants Jesus to do some tricks. Now, let me just say this on this point and go off on a little bit of tangent here. There is a current movement in Christian circles right now where, where within the church and within some, some churches that you might have heard about that have maybe some traction in Christendom, some really frightening things coming out where, where there's this, this desire, this seeking after the supernatural and the sensational. And, and, so, and, and let me just say, it's fine to embrace the supernatural and the sensational things of God just so long as they are biblical, as long as they are spirit-led, and as long as they serve God's purposes. Um, when we gather together on first Wednesday over the last, you know, three months, and, and this month will be the fourth month where we, we do it out in the community, but normally we're here in this room on the first Wednesday of every month. And it's a believer's meeting. We get together, we seek the Lord, we worship Him. And, and we're, we're uh, seeking the Lord in, in the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen some supernatural, sensational things on first Wednesday. We've seen people healed. We have seen uh, words of knowledge given that, that we could not otherwise have known. It's the, just the supernatural, miraculous working of the Lord. And, and sometimes that can freak people out. But, but what happens Happen, it's all decently and in order and biblical what goes on. And those, that, that kind of stuff is, is fine. Um, in the book of Acts, you know, we, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the church is being planted. We see miraculous things being done. And there is a group in in Christianity that says, well, that was dispensational. The the, the supernatural gifting and moving of the Holy Spirit was really just for the first century establishing of the church to authenticate their message, and really, you know, that's not for today. Miracles don't happen. Um, We disagree with that uh, because we see those things happening, and and we believe wholeheartedly that the gifts of the Spirit are in operation today. Um, And, you know, so long as we exercise these gifts biblically, there's not a problem. But the problem in the church right now is that there are many churches that are seeking the pursuit of, of sensational experiences, um, and they're doing so in a way that deviates from the express confines of the Word of God. And they're doing so just for experience kind of sake, and that's a really dangerous path because that you can cross the line into unbiblical behavior. This is a huge problem because John, the apostle in 1 John 4 1, he warned us. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, how do you test the spirits? By the word of God. That's how you test the spirits, right? Well, that is a problem. Let me give you a quote here. This guy, this quote is is by Bill Johnson. He's actually the senior pastor of uh, Bethel Church, which, which has a lot of traction in Christianity right now. And they put out some great music. Some of their songs we sing. But their practices are very alarming. And I want you to be aware of this because we're seeing these pra- that, that have been legitimized by some great music, but some really poor doctrine. So Bill, Bill Johnson, he said this. He said, God wants to take us farther, and we can only get there by following signs. Our present understanding of Scripture can only take us so far. Christians need to stop focusing on protecting themselves from deception, which seems very contrary to 1 John four one we just read, and instead have such a hunger for Jesus that it is seen in their lustful pursuit of spiritual gifts, end quote. Now, that is a problem, because how, what it, how does his church in, in practice put feet on what he's just said, this lustful pursuit of spiritual gifts um, with with a de-emphasis or not focusing on protecting themselves from deception. Well, here are are just a few practices that they incorporate into their services. It's a matter of public record. Um, They they practice an activity that's called soul-soaking in their church. This is where members lay on the graves of famous dead saints in the hope of soaking up the anointing that these saints had. They believe, right? This is just crazy. They believe that everybody can be healed and that anybody who teaches that everybody can't be healed is teaching heresy and not teaching the true gospel. They believe that, you know, during their services, they will, they will have, you know, this, this atmosphere where, where gold dust falls down from the ceiling and feathers fall down from the ceiling. And they, they, they claim that they have nothing to do with this, that those are angel feathers that are falling from the ceiling and gold dust that, that is a supernatural manifestation you know, of their experience. They are known to have actually um, affirmed the practice of using prophetic cards in like a tarot card kind of way where they will deal out your hand to you and then somebody will will interpret those cards and that is a a, a prophecy from God, they say, about your future, right? These, These are, every one of them, unbiblical practices, right? Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits, the Bible says, whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's a very dangerous thing when we start looking for signs, when we start seeking signs. Man, I want to see a sign. I want to see some special, you know, deal here, right? This is what Herod is all about. So again, what what this church is doing and 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 what the temptation in a lot of Christian circles is is the seeking after the sensational works and the de-emphasis of the sensational word of God. And so, so we really need to have a balance. So, so here's, here's Herod, verse 8, and he's all, man, he's just so excited because he wants to see Jesus do some tricks. He's all about the supernatural. Verse 9, and then Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes, they stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, verse 11, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, verse 12 tells us, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other, with one another. They, they become friends over this harsh and brutal treatment of Jesus. And Pilate and Herod go, oh man, you... You like to beat, you know, innocent guys up too. Hey, that's cool. Let's be friends kind of thing. Just this horrible thing. Now, verse 11, I want you to to focus in on that. Understand when Herod and his men treated Jesus with contempt and mocked Jesus. I want you to understand. I want to camp out here for a minute because this is a great point of application for us to take a walk with. This was simply the outworking of a long pattern of behavior in his life. Treating Jesus with contempt and beating him was just the the next natural step of of a life, of a pattern of behavior that had contempt for and mocked God, right? Herod was contemptuously mocking God when he stole his brother's wife. He was contemptuously mocking God when he rejected John the Baptist's righteous rebuke. And instead of receiving a rebuke and repenting, he throws him in prison. And in doing so, he's mocking God. Uh, When he lusted after Salome, Herodias' daughter, he he was mocking God. Uh, When when, uh, he beheaded John the Baptist, he was mocking God. And so here now, when he comes face-to-face with Jesus, and they treat him contemptuously, and they mock him, it's just this well-entrenched pattern in Herod's life. The application for you and me. Maybe today, first of all, that's you. Maybe today, mocking God has become become a well-entrenched pattern in your life. Jude one eighteen says, In the last days there will be mockers who don't take the things of God seriously anymore. They'll treat them like a joke and they will make a religion of their own whims and lusts. You know, sadly, my grandfather, he would f- fit that verse. He, he, in this category of saying, gosh, you know, does your life mock God? He actually kind of would would fit that description. My grandfather was a medical doctor, and he wasn't a very warm man, as I recall. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he had us, us grandchildren call him Dr. Grandpa, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> Well, Dr. Grandpa was married 10 times, right? Nine women, 10 times. My grandmother was number four and number five. Actually, I had to text my mom. I'm like, so uh, Dr. Grandpa, like he was married 10 times to nine women. Grandma, I know, was married twice. What number was she? And so my mom sent me back a list of, of all 10. She's like, here they are. Your grandmother was number four and number five. And it goes down through, you know, these 10 marriages. And then she adds at the bottom, this is all that we know of, right? <laughs> so, my aunt Nancy Jane, who was the daughter of his uh, sixth wife, she likes to say that he was a doctor who liked to play doctor, right? That's that. Sadly, that's my that's my grandpa. Well, on his wedding day to wife number seven, uh, my dad, who's still you know a young you know young kid at, at that time, um, I mean this guy went through wives like changing underwear, you know, and so. My dad was at the barber shop as a kid. He's getting his hair cut, and, and he, it's, just a, it's just a joke to him. He's like, you know, and so he's having this conversation with the barber about how his, he's going to his dad's wedding, and it's his seventh wife, you know, kind of thing. Well, he didn't know that the pastor was sitting in the next chair over who had no idea that this was my grandfather's seventh wedding. Now, I don't know why he went through with the wedding. I, I wouldn't have if I were in his shoes. I'd be like, I'm out, man. You know, that would have been good information to disclose to me. You know, we, we were going through your pre-marriage counseling. But at any rate, this, this guy does the wedding, but here's how he starts the wedding. He started the wedding, quoting Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows that he will also reap. This was the beginning uh, of this number seven wedding ceremony. Here's the sad truth. Do not be deceived. My grandfather was deceived, right? And he, he might have told you he was a Christian. Frankly, I don't know. But, but he might have told you that he was a Christian. But look, there are some very glaring ways that my grandfather was a serial mocker of God, right? And at the end of the day, the fruit of his life would seem to be lacking and might suggest that like Herod, he didn't really know Jesus, right? But I want you to consider now this morning, as I ask the question, I say, man, do you mock God? All of us, even Christians, can harbor areas in our life of habitual sin. Just these well-worn paths of sin and sinful behavior that we kind of wink at. We just sort of sweep it under the rug of our life, right? It's been said that Christians aren't perfect, they're just perfectly forgiven. And that's true. But even so, the Bible exhorts us in Scripture that we're supposed to live lives of sanctification, that $12 Christian word, which simply means that we need to grow in the knowledge and image of God. Now, <clears throat> sanctification is what Paul talked about when he talked to the Philippians in Philippians 2.12. He said that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not, he's not saying there that you need to work for your salvation. Your salvation is a work that Jesus did on the cross, right? This is what is happening in Luke 23. He's going to the cross. He's going to purchase our salvation because all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's none who does good. No, not one, the Bible says. And there's no good that you can do to earn your salvation. Jesus did that. That's his work for you in the past on the cross. But once you... Become a Christian once you receive that new nature. Once you are born again by the Spirit of God, you sti- it's not like everything just magically changes in your life. It's not like, and yes, you do become a new creation, but God doesn't always just, just immediately deliver you from sinful patterns in your life. This is a work of sanctification, You have just stepped from being lost to now I am found, and now in the years that remain in your life here on earth as a believer in Jesus Christ, God is going to refine you. So he did a work for you in the past on the cross, and now God wants to do a work in you in the present, and this is a work that requires cooperation, and so it's been, it's been described this way, that it's kind of like bench pressing. Now, when, you are on, when you're at the gym and you are bench pressing, what do you have to have with you? Who do you have to have with you? You have to have a spotter, right? And so what's the spotter's job? Spotter's job is to shame you into pushing more, more things up, right? No, he's there to encourage you. He's there to help you. Places his hands on the bar, and he's he's and you're like I'm done. And he goes no 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 push push you can do more. And, and then you know he's there he's egging yawn, and oh I okay and do it again push push, push. and you're oh, I'm dying I'm dying no you can do it right and so you go through this process and then you get to the end of it and you you go I'm gassed and you look at the spotter and you're like how much of that was you and how much of that was me right. Yeah, and it's kind of like that Space Cowboys movie where the guy, you know, he's the, the guy here is pulling up and doing all the weight. Anyway, that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. Not a perfect analogy. But but the Holy Spirit, he, he, he is there in our lives after we're saved, and he's working to, to do this, this transforming work of sanctification. God's work in the present through the Holy Spirit, with your cooperation to, to grow, right? And so so this is is an important part of our life because here's the thing. Um, You are designed to form habits. Did you know that? You're designed. God created you physiologically. He made you and he made me um, to be people who learn information and then have that information become something that we do without having to consciously think about it. Here's how it works. Physiologically, you've got a clump of cells inside your brain, and it's called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is about the size of a golf ball, sits in the center of your skull, and the basal ganglia takes complex pieces of information and and takes it from a place where you have to consciously learn a new, new task to where it just becomes second nature. I'll describe it this way. If you're learning how to drive a stick shift, very complicated. A lot of people don't even know how to drive a stick shift anymore. Um, and, uh, and so, but, but driving a stick shift, very complicated task. And you have to, you have to balance the pushing in the clutch and the, the, you know, the right application of gas and, you know, not standing heaven help you if you're on a hill. You know, you got to coordinate the brake and all of that stuff, right? Well, learning that required a lot of concentration, but after time, it's just second nature. You don't even think about it. You know, where in the beginning, intense concentration, now you're in the place where, you know, I just drove three miles and I don't remember the last three miles, right? It just comes second nature. And God's created you that way because can you imagine if all of life for you to learn any new task required the level of concentration of when you were first learning? Like you would reach a lid very quickly of, I just can't think about anything else. I can't learn new things. So God designs us with the basal ganglia, you know, helping us to, and scientists have a technical word for it, they call it chunking. You, you it meant something different when I was in high school, but you, have, you take complex pieces of information and your brain chunks it into habitual patterns. That's great until sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, then what happens with you is that now you chunk patterns of sin. And so now you have these habitual practices of drug abuse and of alcohol abuse and of gluttony or lying or lust or gossip, these these well-worn patterns of sinful behavior in our life. And so the thing that we have to take a walk with is that by nature, as sinful fallen people, we have, all of us, have sinful habits and those habits, as I said, they don't always just magically disappear when you're born again, when you come to Jesus. And so again, how did we get here? Because here what's happened is that in Herod's life, this, this sinful pattern, the, the beating and the chastising of Jesus and the, and the mocking of Jesus, it was just the logical next step in just a life given over to these, to these sinful patterns. You as a Christian, we we have to go, okay, bad, Herod, that's not good, you know, this is the Messiah, okay, but even when we come to know Jesus, we have to take a walk with, gosh, do I have sinful patterns in my life that that need to to be dealt with, right? That there is a day-by-day battle between the flesh and between the spirit. Paul articulated this. He said, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And he says, of course, Jesus is the one that saves us. And the work is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit working in you, working through you, and the power uh, that, that he provides. Paul told the Corinthians this. He said, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So he said, run to win. Athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. And so I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about living a life of sanctification. Where day by day God's doing a work in you and through you. And Paul, here in this, speaking to the Corinthians, he uses words like discipline and training and purpose. And his point is that healthy spiritual habits don't just happen magically, they happen as a result of effort, right? Think about Daniel. What, is, what does the Bible say about Daniel? It says in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And that word purposed, um, the idea is, is to set and to direct. And, and in, uh, an illustration of this is like a director on a movie set. What's he do? He, he goes over a scene and they rehearse it and they repeat it and he directs it and what's he doing? He wants it to go according to the script. And this is what Daniel did. He said, I want to live my life according to the script, a process of sanctification. I'm going to purpose in my heart that I'm not going to sin against the Lord. Now, two quick things about that. Number one, the Bible says that this is a work that we do, but we do it with supernatural power. Okay, the Holy Spirit, there are moving and working. Paul told the Romans that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Right? And secondly, the the other thing I'd say about this is that this ongoing work of, of sanctification, again, remember, it's the Lord's working, it's the Lord's doing. He's working in the present with us. And it's only possible, hear what I'm about to say here. It is only possible the Lord working in the present in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is only possible because of the Lord's work for the past, for us in the past. The, the work that Jesus is doing on the cross. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, we are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you Holy and through your belief in the truth. I want you to notice there is both the a a looking to here in this verse, a looking to the past work of Jesus on the cross, but there's also a looking to the present work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so verse 13, we continue, and it says, then Pilate. So so Herod, just this, this long line of disobedience and of mocking God and sends Jesus back. And so now Jesus has gone, has, Herod's like, you know, having mocked Jesus and everything, doesn't find him guilty. He just mocks him, turfs him back to, to Pilate. So verse 13, he's now back before Pilate. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people... Verse 14, he said to them, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people and indeed having examined him in your presence, I've found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod for I sent you back to him and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And so Pilate says, verse 16, I will therefore chastise him and I'll release him for it was necessary Uh, The Bible comments now and tells us for Pilate to release one of the prisoners at the feast. Um, And they all cried out, verse 18, uh, at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. So they say, we don't want Jesus. Kill him. Crucify him. Give us The the rebel, give us the murderer. We'll come back to that. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, he again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. This is the very crowd who only days before were saying, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now is what Hosanna means. Save now, save now. You're our Messiah, And now they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And then, verse 22, Pilate said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I find no reason, I found no reason for uh, death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and verse 25, and this is key, and this is where we're going to wrap things up. He says, He released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Listen, I told you when we began the message today that, the, that, that really the introduction and the, 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 the big idea of our text, hey, when men were doing their worst, God was doing his best. A big idea for you today, even when you are at your worst, God is doing his best. And the key is right there in verse 25. 2 Corinthians really is is verse 25 repackaged in in a way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin or to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what I want you to understand. They're crying out for Barabbas. He's a rebel and he's a murderer. Today, take a good long look in the mirror because you are Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. We're we're the rebels. We're the murderers. We are are the guilty ones. Isaiah the prophet said, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've, We've turned everyone to his own way. God laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus took our sins to the cross. He died on the cross for your sin, for my sin in our place. Isaiah said he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Listen, guys, we're going to close with three questions as we do, and we're going to partake of communion today. And these questions are for you to take a walk with this week. Prayerful walk, maybe do so in your community groups or, or, or with a friend or in your morning devotions. Question number one, which best describes you? Do you hunger for the sensational works of God or do you hunger for the sensational words of God? And what should a healthy balance of this look like? And what should you do to seek and to maintain a healthy balance between the miraculous works of God and the miraculous word of God? Question number two, are there any well-entrenched patterns of sin in your life? Just these well-worn paths that you need to deal with. And question number three, what's the difference between salvation and sanctification? Just answer that question in your own words. What is God's role in salvation? What is God's role in sanctification? And what's your role in salvation? And what's your role in sanctification? Take a walk with these this week.